We've all seen the incredible horse and rider combinations as the backbone of our sport. But what about everything else that makes the equestrian world tick? From the everyday grind to the world-class professional, join the Equestrian Podcast as we talk about every equestrian discipline in a way that hasn't been done before. Now here's your host, rider, trainer, and influencer behind my equestrian style, Bethany Lee. Hi, and welcome to the Equestrian Podcast. I'm your host, Bethany Lee, and this is episode 107. Our guest today is the U.S. Polo Association Governor at Large, who has played polo all over the world, including in the U.S., Mexico, Argentina, China, Guatemala, Canada, and India. Obviously, she is an incredible rider. She is also an attorney, but she has a huge passion for rescuing horses. She has some amazing stories of how she saved horses that then became successful polo ponies for her. I just love her story, and I love her knowledge behind something that she is so passionate about, and it made me want to look into rescuing horses more. So without further ado, I would love to welcome our guest today, Pamela Flanagan. Thank you so much for taking the time to come on the podcast. Of course. I'm excited to be here. Awesome. Well, I have so many questions, but would love to hear about how you first got into the equestrian world, how you were first introduced to horses. Sure. So when I was super little, I have a pretty big family and none of them are into horses, surprisingly. I feel like Hmm. that's how most people get into it. But uh, I always had a passion for horses, even at a really young age. I was maybe four or five years old. And there was this gas station near our house that we'd go to, obviously, to fill up with gas. And right behind it was a little riding stable. And little is an understatement. It was literally just like a paddock and a tiny little barn. And I was maybe four or five and I'd see these people riding around and I begged my parents to just let me take a lesson. So at four years old, I started taking riding lessons and I would just go there every Tuesday, Thursday and literally sit on a pony and be hand walked around this little paddock arena for an hour, you know, and totally hooked. So it all, that's how it started. It was my own volition and my own kind of deep-seated passion that I didn't even realize at four years old was a passion, but something was there that told me that I needed to be with horses and I pursued that and never, never stopped. Yeah. Love that. So how did you find kind of navigating your love for riding at super young age? Cause like you were saying, a lot of it sometimes with other people has to do with whether they are exposed by family or friends and with not having many people or, or anyone in your family who enjoyed horses like you did. How did you kind of navigate that and get more and more exposure in practice? Sure. I think that's a really good question because a lot of people are under the impression um, that you have to have money to be around horses. And that really wasn't the case. I mean, these lessons that I referred to earlier were incredibly inexpensive. And again, it wasn't much. It was just walking around on a pony for an hour, but that's what got me started. And that kind of progressed into me riding by myself and then me trotting by myself and cantering. Mm -hmm. And you know know how it goes. But what I found was the more time I spent at the barn, the more opportunities I came across. The barn that I rode at when I was younger called Fox Creek Stables. And I was there from when I was four until I was 14. I jumped around a little bit, but it was one of those places that was a community place. There were always women my age or young girls my age, you know, they had little summer camps and I would just spend all day there. And what would happen was people would ask me to hot walk their horses and they'd pay me a dollar or I'd offer to pick a row of stalls and get a free lesson. Or, you know, I would do all of these little things. One of the things my best friend and I did at a really young age was we worked pony parties. So we just found any way possible for us to 
be involved with horses and that provided us more opportunity to be around them even more. You know, we do these crazy pony parties where we drive to fairs and birthday parties and we were maybe like 10, 11 years old and we'd walk ponies and we'd get paid $5 an hour and we'd get a free lesson, you know? So for us, that was a really big deal. And it covered those really minor expenses at that age that, you know, were accruing and provided us the ability to be around the horses and be around horse people, like-minded people. And I think that's what allowed it to stick with me, despite my family not being interested in it. You know, I didn't have friends in school or cousins or anything that were interested in it. The the friends that I made were friends from the barn. And to this day, my best friend that I did those pony parties with and grew up riding with is still my best friend. And she recently moved to Denver and we still ride together. It's like nothing's changed. I love it. That's so cool. At what point were you narrowing in on polo? So that happened in high school. I went to a boarding school called Culver Academies and they have an incredibly beautiful equestrian program there where they offer a variety of disciplines to people that have ridden before or people that have no experience riding. And since I had at that point, time become an experienced rider and experienced around horses, I signed up for every opportunity that they provided. So I did the rough riding team. I did the jumping team. I did the polo team, the equestrian team. I mean, you name it. If it was an option, I did it. So I really wanted to just, again, be around horses as much as possible. And I felt that joining all these different teams would provide me that, that kind of outlet. So when I joined polo, it was like, dang, this is super fun. Every horse sport is fun, but for me, for whatever reason, polo just blew my mind. It was that perfect combination of horses and sports. And um, having four older brothers and playing sports all my life, I always had that kind of competitive edge and I loved the team element. So polo was just, it all clicked. The minute I started polo, it was like, I never turned back. Wow. That's so cool. I mean, it's so, I feel like, because I haven't experienced polo personally, I feel like it's so different and there's so many different types of skills and yeah, I guess like grit and teamwork that you need for polo. That's just like a step above maybe some other disciplines that I've ridden. What were, what were some adjustments when you were first, once you were first exposed to polo that you had to experience to be able to start doing more polo and getting better and better? Right. So the first thing is with other disciplines, because I did other disciplines growing up, you know, not at a competitive level, but I had a general understanding and competed at low levels. But your main focus is your horse. You know, you have, you're constantly thinking about your horse and how you can get your horse to do whatever it is you're trying to accomplish. With polo, it's like you need to get to a point where you can get your horse to perform in that way, but you don't have to think about your horse. Mm You know, you need to be able to think about the plays. So you need to be able to almost get to a point with your horse where you can forget about them and they know their job well enough to do it on their own. You need that push button pony so that you can focus your attention elsewhere. The other big difference too is, again, growing up, I had this adorable little fat paint horse (laughs) and I rode him every day. So I was really, you know, accustomed to one horse and I would ride my trainer's horses and I'd be assigned a horse for maybe a month or two before she sold it. And, but you'd pretty much have one or two or maybe three horses you were riding for a you know extended period of time. In polo, you ride one horse for seven minutes that you've probably never been on before. And then you jump on another horse for seven minutes that you've probably never been on before. And you have about 30 seconds to get to know that horse and then boom, you play it. So 
being able to jump from horse to horse, totally different horse, totally different, you know, size, personality, style, movement, and still be able to perform in the sport itself. That was definitely an adjustment and definitely something that's unique to polo at the interscholastic, which is high school and intercollegiate levels. And I think that part of polo is what makes people really solid riders. You ride everything and anything, and you only have a certain amount of time to a very short period of time to get used to it. So it's very unique in that you sit on a lot of horses if you play in high school and college. What are some of your goals that you have for yourself with your polo career? Well, so one of them was to win the Women's U.S. Open, and we did that last year. Amazing. Uh, 2019, yes. It's funny because one of my goals within that goal was to ride one of my rescues in the Women's Open, and we also did that in 2019. So my first rescue, Stella, I rescued her in the fall, winter of 2016. I really wanted to train her to be a polo pony and then really prove that she is, you know, talented and capable and trainable. And so I gave her some time off, worked with her a lot, you know, had a a bunch of friends and um, teammates work with her as well. And we got her to a place where she was playing with us in the 2019 Women's U.S. Open. And for me, that was a really big moment. That was just as big as winning the Open. It really meant a lot to me. So now that I've accomplished that goal in polo, (laughs) my next goal is to do it again with a different rescue. And if I really was aiming big, I'd want to win the Open three years in a row. It's just something that, to my knowledge, hasn't been done. I just think it would be, you know, uh, a really incredible achievement. And being goal-oriented is something that is a big part of who I am. And the pursuit of excellence is something that I've always strived for. And I, I really think that that would be something that would, you know, stick with me forever. And if I, if I don't do three in a row, that's fine. You know, I'm not going to be too disappointed, but it's definitely something I'm striving for. Amazing. You made me think of like 10 more questions in the last little (laughs) bit, but what do you look for in a horse that's like perfect for polo? So for me, it really, really, one of the things I focus on is their build, their conformation and their size. I have a preference for smaller horses and people in polo have different opinions and preferences. Some people like the big leggy thoroughbreds that can cover a lot of ground. Those Mm -hmm. horses are fantastic and wonderful for me. And I think it's because, you know, I started as an arena player. My preference is, yeah, of course, big, fast horses, but on the smaller side, I like the super handy light horses, the horses that people always say, you know, don't touch their mouth because they're really sensitive. Mm -hmm. Some people hate that. One of my, one of my teammates in college, I remember whenever someone would say that about one of the horses, she was like, don't want it. Give me a different one. (laughs) For me, I, I love that. I love a super light, super handy, small horse. So for me, the ideal size, if I, if I still had the strength and power and speed in a small package, that would be ideal. I'd love like a 14-2, 14-3, 15 hand little pony with, you know, obviously nice confirmation that's going to allow them to have power, have speed and be able to be on the polo field in a safe manner and not injure themselves. Right. So with your first rescue, tell me, like, walk me through a little bit of the process of how you took a horse, which my, my guest didn't have any, really any experience in polo. No, and then turn it into what you did. I mean, it's incredible. What was the process like? Sure. So her name is Stella. She was my first. This was in, I want to say it was October, November, 2016. Okay. 
I feel like a bad mom not remembering exactly, <laughs> but at this point I've accumulated a couple. So yeah. <laughs> a handful. So the dates get a little foggy, but it was sometime fall, winter of 2016. And the way the, the steps involved basically was I found a horse that suited my needs. You know, she was skinny. She was obviously underweight. She wasn't muscled, but when you looked at her, you could tell that she was pretty correct. She was small, which I liked a lot. And whether she was going to be a superstar or not, it didn't matter to me because a big part of it was the fact that I was trying to rescue this horse, mm -hmm. right? So I saw kind of the the very bare basics of, okay, she she could do this. She could have potential. Let's give it a try. And, you know, for example, I wouldn't have rescued a draft horse for polo. Mm -hmm. that, would, right. that would have been silly. Or I wouldn't have rescued a gated horse for polo because, again, that, you know, you're not setting them up for success. So I saw this horse, saw a video of her kind of walking and trotting around and and thought, okay, you know, she could be something, she could be nothing, but I'll take a chance because she has the basics. And um, so I bought her from the pen for, you know, $500 or something along those lines and, and had her shipped to a quarantine facility where she was treated and quarantined to ensure that she didn't carry any, any diseases that could affect the horses at the barn where she would have been eventually stabled, which is really important. The quarantine step is, is really important for people pulling from pens because a lot of these horses have, you know, strangles or, or different issues that really could, you know, put your horses at risk. So you want to mm -hmm. be careful and ensure that quarantine is the first and most basic step and they get vet care and they get looked at, they get worm, they get everything they need to, before they step foot in your barn, they are, they're a clean slate. So put her through quarantine. And then I just turned her out. I just turned her out from, I think it was December to February at a friend's farm in Texas after she got healthy or, you know, healthy enough to get fat, to get happy, to unwind, to relax. I didn't know what she knew, what she mm -hmm. had been through. I had no idea. So I really wanted to give her the opportunity to decompress. And then after that, I was based in Chicago at the time working. I just started my job. So I, I'm an attorney, so I was a little busy. But <laughs> as an insurance policy, I like to say, I sent her to one of my, quote, cowboys in Texas who does a lot of colt starting work. And he's super gentle with them, a lot of natural horsemanship work. His name's Joshua Hill. And so she went in February to Joshua Hill for 30 days just to have him figure out what does she know? You know, is, is she going to flip over and kill me? Is what, what, what does this horse know so far? So he put 30 days on her. She was started under saddle when I got her. It was pretty evident. I had ridden her a couple times before Josh had her and she was sane and quiet, but just, you know, didn't know much. So Josh put those 30 days on her to make sure that everything was, was good to go. And then I had her shipped to Chicago. Wow. And while she was in Chicago, we just started very basic polo training. We'd go in the outdoor arena and just try little patterns and work on lead changes and work on stopping straight and square and correct. And, you know, we would do it at a walk and then turn and turn away from the wall and turn around and walk and stop and turn and walk and stop and do this until we were comfortable. And then we'd do it at a trot and then we'd do it at a canter until she really became handy and quiet and understood when I sat down, she stopped. And when I moved my body a little bit, she'd rotate. So we started with very basic maneuvers and then picked up the mallet. And all of this was done in the arena initially. Introduced the mallet and the ball and started doing these maneuvers with the mallet, cantering around, lead changes, stop, turn, etc. And when I was out of town, I think one of the main things for these horses is consistency. And I truly believe in that. So if I can't be riding them, I need to find someone I trust who can. So while she was in Chicago, if I'd leave for work or whatever it may be, I'd have someone there riding her and continuing what she was working on. You know, that all just progressed into slow practices and then practices into slow games. And fast forward a few years and she's playing in the Women's Open. Wow. At what point were you like, 
she's actually going to be really good. <laughs> yeah. You know, it's funny because I had, I had rescued another one around the same time. Her name's Nala. And so I brought them up together. Both of them went to Joshua. Both of them came to Chicago. And I really am glad that I did that because it was easy for me to compare the two of them and see their capabilities and see their willingness to try. And because of that, Nala's a great horse. Don't get me wrong. She's wonderful. But in terms of willingness to try and get fire and competitive spirit and that kind of spark you want a polo pony to have, I could really feel it in Stella. Whereas with Nala, it was always like, look, I'll do it, but like, <laughs> let's just slow down. Like, what's yeah. the rush? Relax. You know, let's. Yeah. And so for me, having two of them at the same time, it really made me appreciate their strengths. You know, Nala is a horse that I could put any person on. A person that's never ridden before can sit on her and go, you know, ride off into the sunset and she'll take care of them. Stella, not so much. She's a lot more fiery. So they have their strengths and weaknesses. But, you know, having the two of them together is what really made me appreciate their strengths and realize that, you know, Stella might actually have something. I want to take a minute and talk to you about our sponsor today because I love this brand and they are doing some amazing things for the industry. Groom Tote is the only customizable gift box for you and your horse. It's customized by you, for you, and for your and your horse's unique needs. Subscribe to their emails because there are going to be some exciting enhancements coming your way announced early 2021. So spoil yourself because you deserve it and your horse while giving back. Groomtote partnered with Amberly Snyder Freedom Foundation to give back to those in need so you can shop with a purpose. Head over to groomtote.com for information and to grab yourself a box or it would be an amazing trainer gift or a barn friend gift. So jump on it while supplies last. That's groomtote.com, G-R-O-O-M-T-O-T-E.com. Thank you so much, Groomtote. All right, let's get back to the episode. I know a big part of your riding and your passion is for rescuing horses. What what kind of brought upon that passion? Like when you first rescued Stella, how did that all come to be? So when I when I was first looking for a horse, I didn't have any intention to rescue, to be totally honest, because I didn't know anything about the industry. Hmm. So I had just moved from Dallas to Chicago. I had just started working. And my thought process was, I'm not playing college polo anymore. I need to find a way to keep horses in my life and keep riding. And I think the best way is for me to get a project horse. You know, I, I just started working. So I wasn't in a position where I could just go buy a string of horses and play polo and have fun. Yeah. So I thought, okay, I'll get a little cheap project. This will be a good experience for me, a learning experience for me, a learning experience for the horse, and we'll grow together. So when I started looking online, I came across this little kind of, you know, skinny, ugly paint pony, which is now Stella. But at the time I didn't know. And yeah. I called the number listed and I said, Hey, I see this pony, you know, she's cute and small and correct. She's a little skinny and weird looking, but I see that she's pretty decent. You know, what's, what's her story? Why is she so cheap? And the person on the other line was, you know, kudos to them, incredibly candid and basically said, Oh, you know, she's, she's small and skinny. So she's listed at her meat price. Her meat price is around $400. So we'll sell her for five eighty or whatever it was. And I was like, I, you know, I've been around horses a long time, but I'm not familiar with that, that calculation. What, what do you, what do you mean meat, meat price? I'm not following. 
he was like, well, you know, the trucks, they come from Mexico and they'll load up and they pay us about, you know, 40 to 50 cents a pound. And I was like, well, <laughs> oh my gosh, I'm sorry. So all of this just kind of hit me like a truck. And I thought, what, how have I been in horses this long and just not known anything about this? In fact, I felt a sense of ignorance and I felt guilty that, you know, I'd always been a horse lover. I'd been involved in riding my entire life pretty much. And this was an industry I knew nothing about. So it at that point inspired me to, okay, A, I'm taking this horse no matter what. And B, I need to learn more about what's going on. So as I had that spark of inspiration, you know, that was happening in tandem with me working with Stella and seeing how wonderful of a horse she was. And she just continued to fuel my passion to look into it further. You know, how did this horse end up here? Why is she here? She's amazing. She's fantastic. How is this happening to young, healthy horses? And when I, you know, initially started inquiring, people would tell me, oh gosh, yeah, you know, the the horses that end up there are either broken or crazy. So take your pick and, you know, you're not going to find a horse there. And and then I'm looking at this one that I just rescued and I thought, is she an anomaly? Maybe. And so I rescued a couple more and they turned out great too and rescued a couple more and they turned out great too. And I thought, gosh, people just need to be more educated about what's happening you know, and, and sure, some of the horses there are older and some of them are broken, but we're not talking about life-threatening, you know, injuries. Mm-hmm. And we're not talking about super old, maybe they're 12, 13, right? But it was it was not knowing about it that made me feel this kind of sense of guilt and also inspiration to learn more and in a way be a spokesperson for those who also may not have known a lot about it. Wow. If someone here is listening and wanting to look into rescuing, what do you recommend, you know, where, where should they start? Sure. So I will tell you this since 2016, when I dipped my toe in all of this, Mm -hmm. the kill pen industry has turned into, well, it, what they've done is instead of listing these horses that sell to me for 400 for 500 bucks, they're now listing them for 900, 1200, 1500 and profiting off Mm. of the emotions of people who don't want to see this horse shipped to slaughter. But what they're not realizing, what the buyers aren't realizing is these people are not going to, you know, send a horse that they value at $3,000 to kill. You know, if they say this horse is $2,500, they are running it back through an auction. They're not going to send it to Mexico. Uh, It's just the financials don't make sense there. So I feel like the kill pen industry has really taken advantage of people with big hearts at this point. So with that being said, you know, my kind of go-to whenever people ask me is look at local rescues. There are so many young, talented horses now at rescues. There are so many rescues that are supported now because of the the people that used to rescue from kill pens are now supporting these rescues so they can properly vet and, you know, analyze the horses before finding them their new home. So if the home is a proper fit. And one of the websites I really like, it's called the righthorse.com or .org. I'm sorry. I believe it's the righthorse.org. And what they do is they, it's like pet finder, right? Where you Mm -hmm. can look for dogs and cats for adoption, but they post horses at verified adoption agencies. Uh, So they, the righthorse.org has been a really great resource for people looking for projects. But even if the horse isn't on the right horse, there are so many rescues looking to place horses. I think that is the best bet, especially for anyone doing this for the first time, because the horses are already vetted. They already have a general idea of what the horse is capable of, what the soundness is of the horse. So I would start there. But even before that, for every single horse person out there, anyone listening to this, the most important thing you can do for your 
old horse, the one that started you, the first horse you ever owned was check in on them. Make sure they're in a good place. You know, what happened to that pony that you rode for five years and showed for five years that you grew out of? Where is he or she now? Make sure that that horse that carried you through those early years is in a good place and in a retirement that they deserve. So many people lose track of these horses and these older horses that carried through so many young riders end up in these you know, precarious situations and it's just not fair for them. Somebody needs to be looking out for them. And if every single person who's listening to this checks on that one old horse they had, I guarantee you that you know, one of them is gonna need help or one of them needs a surgery or needs a pasture to live in. You know, it, it's just check in on your old horses before you do anything else. Yeah, absolutely. And I mean, something that we've definitely talked about before on the podcast, and that's the end of life care, retirement care, and making sure that that is when you're going to buy or rescue a horse, that you have that in your mind that it's not just for the time that you need it or the time that the horse suits your needs or your goals, but it's for the rest of the horse's life. And if if you don't have, you personally don't have the ability to keep your horse through its retirement and through its life, that you have a place set up and ready to go for that horse to transition to when you and the horse are ready. So I think that's a really, really great point that you bring up. Absolutely. Definitely. Awesome. Well, I mean, I feel like we've talked about this already, but is there a certain area of the industry that you are passionate about that you feel like the rest of the community doesn't know a lot about or doesn't doesn't really talk that much about? You know, I think it's it's the slaughter pipeline that people overlook. It's it's not fun to talk about. You know, it's not glamorous, but every horse from race horses to polo ponies to show jumping horses, you know, there's always been a horse in one of those industry industries that's ended up there at some point. And I think it's just really important for people to open their eyes and ensure that their horses are not ending up there. That's the first step you can do to help. You know, obviously donating to rescues is really helpful and rescuing a horse yourself is incredibly helpful, but even more so is just making sure you're not adding to the problem. One of the things I do is I freeze brand all my horses that come through so that I can always identify them. I want to make sure every single one of my horses has a microchip. And one of my long-term goals is to ensure that all of these pens have to scan for chips and publish it somewhere in a public forum. So if it ever ends up, you get a notification that, hey, your horse number 935226 ended up in a Louisiana kill pen. You know, mm-hmm. it's just, that's something that I'd really like to see happen in the future so that people can, you know, keep track of their horses and ensure that they don't end up there, especially if that horse has someone who would take them and someone who would take care of them. People just need to be more consistent with checking in on their older horses and ensuring that they don't end up in kill pens or slaughterhouses. Have you looked into what kind of like regulations or the legalities of this kill pen industry? Definitely. And currently there's um, an act called the SAFE Act, and they're trying to get that passed, which basically outlaws the export of horses for slaughter. So currently you can't slaughter horses here in the U.S. So what happens is these kill pens are effectively holding pens that collect a bunch of unwanted horses and then trucks from Mexico and Canada drive to the holding pens, kill pens, load up their trucks and drive the horses, you know, back over the border to Mexico and Canada to slaughter them there since it's outlawed in the U.S. The SAFE Act is trying to outlaw the export of horses for slaughter entirely, which the proponents for that basically say, you know, it's the humane thing to do, which the opponents for it basically say, well, if these horses don't get shipped and processed, then they're going to end up starving in a field somewhere. Mm -hmm. 
And, you know, I, I'm not sure how much evidence there is to back up that claim, but that's the main argument against passing that act. So there is definitely some legislation around, you know, outlawing the export for slaughter entirely, but it's been bouncing around for quite some time now. And it's an issue that has strong opinions on both sides. So one of the things that I want to do, and I've been, you know, talking this over with a friend of mine, Jenny Alter from California, one of the things that I'd like to do is better the regulations within the current structure until the SAFE Act is passed, because it seems like it's going to be one of those that kind of drags on for a long time. And in the mm-hmm. meantime, these horses in this industry is really, for the most part, unregulated. Right. So if we, if we could get things like get every horse microchip that passes through there and get these microchips scanned and uploaded to a system for tracking purposes, I, you know, I think that would be a big win. Or ensure that these kill pens always have clean food and water and open them to inspection by certified volunteers that are willing to go there and ensure that the horses do, in fact, have water and, you know, hay that isn't moldy. Small things that kind of better the lives of these horses until we can do something bigger and more impactful. Wow. Yeah, I think that that's a really good point. And I think you have opened the eyes to a lot of people. So I appreciate that you have looked into this so much and that you know so much about it and can spread the word. And I hope that a lot of people listening are learning more through that and are able to take action and help. You mentioned different ways to help and know about where your previous horses are or places to donate. Where? What are some other things that people can do or what are some specific organizations that you would recommend people looking to either volunteer or to donate? Sure. So one of the big ones is Safe from Slaughter Equine Rescue. It's uh, Katie Roosh out of Louisiana runs it, and she is a saint among saints. She was actually really impacted this year by two hurricanes that came across her rescue and totally flattened it. Wow. And she takes in everything from, you know, teeny tiny blind minis to pretty much three-legged draft horses. Wow. She's a full-time nurse, and so this isn't something that she profits on. It's literally just something she does out of the kindness of her heart. So Safe from Slaughter Equine Rescue is the one organization that I really feel strongly about in terms of monetary support, and she really needs it right now. In terms of resources, therighthorse.org is a wonderful resource to find horses if you're interested in adopting. And in terms of you know actions that may not require any kind of financial aspect, volunteering, going to these rescues and picking a stall, hand walking the horses. If you're a trainer, you know, saying, hey, I'll help start one of these horses for you so you can find it a home or even just filling water buckets. They're always looking for help. They are so shorthanded all the time. So I I think that's a really big way that people can help as well. Amazing. Well, Pam, thank you so much for taking the time to come on the podcast. You have been a wealth of knowledge and I am so excited to look into some of these things and, and take your advice and see how we can all be helping out these horses. Oh, thank you for having me. I really appreciate it. All right. That is all I have for you today. Thank you so much for tuning in. If you liked what you heard, please take a minute and write a review on iTunes. I would so appreciate it. It helps people like you find the podcast and it helps me get some killer guests. Thank you so much. And I will talk to you next week.